Hey there, Social Work 6382 students. I don't know what you're doing right now. I don't know what's going on in your lives, but whatever you're up to right now as you're listening to this, I hope that you are enjoying yourselves in some way. Uh, we've got what I hope is an interesting podcast lecture for you today. Um, I say we, I have what I hope is an interesting podcast lecture for you today. Today's podcast lecture, you know, I sat down uh, to plan it. Usually when I'm, before I sit down in front of a microphone and start talking, I make an outline of what it is that I want to talk about. And what I'll do before I make the outline, or as I make the outline, is I'll, I'll read the chapter in the book. And from the content that's in that, I'll go ahead and I'll make up my podcast lecture. And normally, like this week, I sat down with the book and I was like, oh, I got to read this book. All right, let me let me get ready. I kind of, you know, I did some stretching and stuff like that, did some breathing exercises to get myself ready to read this thing because it, this book could be a slog. And I opened it up to chapter four and I started reading. And you know what? Chapter four is not so bad. It's not great, but it's not so bad in my opinion. I kind of liked this one. I felt like this chapter more than the chapters we've read previously anyways, uh, did a really good job of summarizing, giving you kind of like a highlights reel uh, of a bunch of different big kinds of theoretical mojo. And big theoretical mojo is like my thing. And so I was reading this and I was like, you know, I this is, this is good. I wish that the rest of the book made me read like chapter four. Now, maybe you read chapter four and you thought it was terrible. If that's the case, you know, I guess we disagree on that, but I thought it was okay. So here's my plan for chapter four. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time talking about that in this podcast lecture because I just, I don't think that it will really be that necessary to do so. What I am going to spend time talking about in this podcast lecture is some other concepts that are not in chapter four that I think are useful and hopefully also interesting for you all to think about as you go about doing the work that you do with communities. Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? I am one of those melodramatic fools, neurotic to the bone, no doubt about it. Sometimes I give myself the creeps Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me It all keeps setting up I think I'm cracking up Am I just paranoid? Am I just up? Okay, and we are back. So I have a number of points that I want to cover on this podcast lecture. And those points are listed on the class's Moodle page. So the first one is that communities have an immune system. The second one is about what it's like to enter a community that is not actually our community. And I want to talk about, as I talk about that, I want to make reference to this really wonderful book that I would encourage everybody to read called The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. After that, we're going to talk about uh, assessing communities, but I'm going to try to sort of spice that up a little bit. And when I talk about assessment, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be likening assessment to going hunting for ghosts, because that makes assessment sound 
way more interesting. And I actually think it's an accurate way to think about how we do assessment work with communities, right? So it sounds cool. It sounds fun. And I think that that's how we should do it anyways. So we'll talk about that. Then the last idea that we'll spend time talking about is something that comes from uh, on the Moodle page. It says uh, D ampersand G. Uh, so that, that stands for Deleuze and Guattari. These are two French thinkers. And I'm trying to say their names like the proper French way, Deleuze and Guattari. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to do that for this entire podcast lecture. I will probably slip and start kind of like Anglicanizing, Americanizing their names and call them Deleuze and Guattari. Uh, but that's who I'm talking about here. I'm going to talk to you about an idea that they put forward in an incredible book, which is super revolutionary. And I mean, it. When I read this book, it was it it rocked my world. It's called Anti Oedipus, and I it, it's cool because it's a book which is kind of in some ways a little anti psychoanalytic, and psychoanalysis is my thing. Like that's what I live and breathe. And I read that book. Uh, because, well, I, you know, I was somebody who loved psychoanalysis and there's a lot of people who didn't love psychoanalysis and they would frequently refer to this book, Anti-Oedipus. And so I wanted to understand what they were referring to, you know? And so I, I got the book and I read it. And when I read it, I found that it wasn't one as anti-psychoanalytic as I thought It, it is against the current of psychoanalysis as it was in that day and age. But when it was written, but it, it's just it's got a great critique of psychoanalysis, like a really solid, well thought out, very developed, very fair critique of psychoanalysis. And and the way that they do it is just great. So we're going to spend some time talking about one of their ideas, which has to do with why it is that communities and individuals within communities oftentimes work very hard to keep themselves in bad situations as opposed to working to liberate themselves from said bad situations. So that's what we're going to be doing here. Let's start off right away by sliding in to the first point, which is communities and their immune system. This idea is actually not that complicated. It's kind of like a metaphor more than it is an idea. And it's a metaphor that I wanted to toss out to you because I think it is an important thing to keep in mind for many of you in this class. And it's been an idea that has served me well in some of the work that I've done. So when you're a social worker, there are going to be times where potentially you will have to enter into a community, a group of people uh, that have connections with each other, but you don't have connections with them. You're not a part of the community right? You're, you're an outsider attempting to come into it. And what I want to say, if you ever find yourself in that situation, is I think, you, it, I think it might help you to think about why it is that people might react the way that they react to you. Um, and I, I say this because I, I've listened to so many of my colleagues who are social workers complain about this. They complain very often uh, about going into communities with good intentions, with lots of things that they'd like to do to help the members of the community improve their conditions. And they find that when they do this, the community does not like greet them with open arms. The community does not roll out the red carpet. The community does not you know, go, yes, please tell us how we could live better. That's not what happens. 
And, and I mean, usually to some degree, they don't expect those sorts of things to happen. I'm exaggerating when I say that. But what they, they do expect is that what they'll be able to do is kind of like work consistently for a period of time to earn the trust and respect of the people within the community. And then once they've earned that trust and earned that respect, that they'll be able to convince the members of that community to make changes that the the social worker coming into the community thinks are good changes. And their frustration comes from the fact that even after they have put in the time and the energy and uh, in in the attempts to kind of create meaningful connections with people in the community, that the community still seems to not trust them. The community seems to still uh, maybe be afraid of them, but not really respect them all that much. That's something that people have said they find frustrating a whole bunch. Now, the most common example of this is, of course, like literal community organizing when people go into communities that tend to be in various ways disadvantaged and they try to bring advantages to that community to organize. That's one. But you'll see it in other areas too. Uh, For example, if you're just like a school social worker and you're trying to I guess uh, either bring a group to you or or enter a group. It it really could go either way. You're trying to enter into a community of students and, you know, do different things that that community of students will hopefully find enriching, helpful, those sorts of things. You might find in that situation that again, the community of students don't accept you. Uh, If you're a social worker, there might be another community, which is totally adjacent to you, the community of teachers and you might have a good relationship with that community. You might not. You know, it, it really depends. Uh, so the, I, the point I'm trying to make here is that I don't want people to think of communities as simply like geographic communities, places in, in space where people live. Communities are much more complicated than that. And we talked about that, of course, I think back in our first or second class. So I won't go over it again. You get it. You're smart people. Uh, so the metaphor that I want to give you for this, for why entering these communities maybe is difficult, is think of communities as having an immune system, the same way that the human body has an immune system. Again, this isn't a really complicated idea. The way that the human immune system works is if something unexpected, something foreign, it finds its way into the body. This could be a virus. This could be a bacteria. It it could be... um, if, if you have a surgery and the surgeon like leaves something in your body, that would be a foreign object that your immune system would start to attack. Uh, that's what it does. The immune system tries to find things that are different, that don't that the body thinks this shouldn't be here. And then it, it attacks those things and tries to get rid of them, get them out of the body in whatever ways they can. I find that communities have a very similar function that they engage in. Whenever somebody who is not a member of the community comes into the community, I think it inevitably triggers some kind of an immune response within that community. Sometimes a very strong response and other times perhaps a very weak response, but there's always some kind of a response. Now, one of the things that's interesting also about the human immune system, uh, if somebody, for example, has like an autoimmune issue, their immune system can attack things that are actually not threats. And that creates inflammation and and other sorts of problems within the human body when people have an autoimmune issue. Communities can also have that. Communities can attack things. The immune system, I should say, of a community can attack things, can attempt to get rid of things. Then it might be a good idea for that community to not really try to get rid of it. It can read 
an outsider as a threat. And a lot of times, by the way, uh, I should make this clear too, the, the community immune system oftentimes is correct. A lot of times when somebody from outside the community comes into a community, that person might actually be a threat. That's not crazy to think that. But there are instances where uh, people are not threats, but they get read that way. And that can be really frustrating. And I think that that happens to certain social workers who are attempting to enter communities. My last point about this is to say that uh, just because you think you're not a threat to a community doesn't mean that you're not actually a threat. Uh, that, and this is a really important point, I think. A lot of times I have found that when social workers go into communities, they think that because they have good intentions, that that's in and of itself is enough for them to be uh, you know, accepted and uh, just integrated into the community. Here's the thing, though. A lot of times communities, social workers bring change, and sometimes the change is the social worker describing a change that would work in most communities, but that change won't necessarily work in the community that they're going into. And that, in that sense, the community is not wrong to sort of uh, have a negative kind of immune response to that social worker. Let me give you an example. This isn't exactly a social work example, but I think it'll work well enough for talking about social workers as well. I have a friend who is a very religious person and who has done some missionary work. They've gone places and they with a church and they have tried to do good things in the places they go. And what they what this person has experienced is sometimes they'll go places and people will be like, "Oh yes, we're so glad you're here. We'll come, we'll do stuff. We'll we'll what is it you want us to say? We'll say that. We're really interested. We want to change. Please help us." They do those sorts of things. But then what will happen is the as soon as they 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 end up leaving like the the orbit of the missionaries and they go back to living their lives exactly the way they were before the missionaries got there and he and my friend found this very 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 frustrating because he thought it was like dishonest what what these communities were doing and we had a conversation about this and i was saying like dude like come on you got to think about this here you are a group of people who show up with all sorts of things and stuff that this community needs. And you want, you actually do want them to comply with a certain set of norms. You, you might think that, that complying with those norms is a really good thing. You might think it would be really helpful for them to do that, but that's, that's what you want. You didn't, you don't know if they want that. You might, you might think it would be good for them to want that, but maybe they do. And maybe they don't, you don't know. And, if you think about it, if you're somebody who doesn't have things that you need and somebody shows up with the things that you need and they want you to act, talks, behave in a particular way, you'll probably do it to get those things. But if you don't actually want to do that, if you don't want to think, speak, and behave in that way, as soon as you don't have to, you'll stop, right? And this is a really important thing to, to bear in mind too. My missionary friend thought that this was one of those kind of like immune system responses. I think we could call it that, but I think that in addition to that, the, the, well, I think that my friend and the missionary work he was doing can be seen in many ways as, as noble and good. I think that it makes sense to me that a, a different culture, a different community might not see it that way. They, they might see it as a threat to their kind of like the way that they've lived their lives up till now. 
And I, I want to be really careful with this because I, I, I think that missionaries do good work and I think that missionaries sometimes do some suspect work. I don't, you know, that's kind of how it works ultimately, right? People can do good things. People can do bad things. But whenever, and, and I guess this is the part that I want to say to you all because you're going to be social workers, be really careful if you go into a community that isn't your community and you're, you're bringing whatever good things you're bringing of the fact that there might be a slightly coercive or perhaps maybe even more than slightly, just a coercive element to what you're bringing. And if that's the case, that's going to definitely trigger the community's immune system and you should really bear that in mind. I have more that I could say about this, but I'm actually going to stop here because I don't want to talk for too long. And maybe this is something that we can pick up when we meet as a class. Broken windows in empty hallways A pale dead moon in a sky streaked with gray Human kindness is overflowing And I think it's gonna rain today Scarecrows dressed in the latest styles With frozen faces to keep love away Human kindness is overflowing And I think it's gonna rain today So the next thing that I want to talk about is about entering communities. And I want to make a reference to a text that I think is a really interesting text. It is a text titled The Dispossessed. It's a novel, a work of fiction by a woman named Ursula K. Le Guin. This is a book that if I had my way, it would be like required reading for this class, but I I don't, so it's not. And so I'm just going to tell you about it a little bit here. It's a, a science fiction book and it's awesome. In this book, there's uh, like this planet, and then there's a moon orbiting the planet. And what has happened is a long, long time ago, a bunch of people who were uh, political dissidents who really wanted to create a super egalitarian society where there wasn't things like personal property uh, ended up going to this moon, and they just set up a society there. And then one of the people who is a member of this moon society named Shivik he wants to go and check out the planet. And the story is the story of what happens to him when he tries to go and leave the moon and head down to the planet. And it's really interesting because there's this theme throughout the entire book and it's the theme of walls. And there's a question, I think, in the text. And the question is, can we or can't we walk through walls? And I thought this was fascinating because the way that this text talks about walls, there are sometimes where there are physical walls, like literal walls that people have built to keep other people away. Uh, Those are not walls that we can walk through. People can try to go over them or dig under them, blow them up, but you can't literally walk through them. But there are these other walls that exist within societies. And the thing is here, it's, it's a little bit less clear whether or not we can walk through them. So for example, if you're a social worker going into a community that is not your community, you're trying to walk through a wall. 
Now, you may physically take your body from outside that community and move it to inside that the community, but that doesn't mean that you've actually walked through the wall and that you've gotten into the community. And I think that this is just a really wonderful and beautiful idea. It's a really great way to think about working with communities. Um, I could talk about this book for a really long time, and I feel a desire to do so, but I'm going to actually not do that now. I'm just going to kind of bring this up here and toss it out for you and hopefully entice you to check it out sometime because it's a really, really wonderful book with wonderful ideas that I think are very applicable to social work in general and social work with communities in particular. Which brings me to my next point, assessing communities. This is something we're going to talk a lot more about next week, but I kind of want to open the box this week so that when you read chapter five next week, you have what I'm about to say sort of rattling around inside your brain. So whenever you go into a community, and this could this applies to communities that you are a part of and to communities that you're not a part of. I, I think it can work in either place. Uh, there, there's these different things that you can find probably all over the internet and in books and stuff about how to engage in assessing communities, assessing their strengths, assessing their weaknesses, assessing their values, assessing all sorts of different things about them. And I've read a lot of those things. Some of them have been useful. Some of them haven't been. But more recently, I don't know how long ago this started. It's been within the past couple of years. I started to think about the assessment work that I do differently than I ever did previously. This came from reading a a different book. I'm going to do a lot of book dropping here today, book name dropping. There's a book called The Specters of Marx by Jacques Derrida. And it's another book which is very wonderful and had a huge impact on me. And in this book, the, the author Derrida, he talks about ghosts and he talks about specters. And the way he talks about ghosts is to say that ghosts are things from uh, an individual's past or a community's past, something that happened. It's not happening now. It happened in the past, but there's like a ghost of that thing that even though it's not happening now, the ghost of it still kind of lingers around and affects things that are happening now. Uh, The most convenient example I can think of this for our society is the ghost of 9-11. That is an event that happened and... I would say that the ghost of that event continues to haunt us now. That event is not happening now. It happened in the year 2001, all right? It, and we're now, you know, coming up on, uh, it'll be 20 years later very soon here in 2021. Uh, in September of that year, it'll be 20 years later. So 20 years later, that is the amount of time between the event and, and now-ish, uh, but that event, the ghost of that event continues to haunt. I'm saying a lot about this. You're smart. You understand what I'm saying, I think, right? So that's one thing. Another thing we can talk about are specters. And specters are things that haven't happened yet, but the idea of them happening kind of haunts uh, an individual or a community. And uh, give you an example of a specter, climate catastrophe. Climate catastrophe has not happened yet. We haven't hit like some sort of terrible moment where like the the world goes completely crazy uh because it heats up too much or whatever where we might be getting closer and closer to that every moment but we haven't arrived there yet uh that is a specter uh, i remember being a kid growing up in the 80s 
there was the specter of nuclear war. Nuclear war had not happened, but the idea that it could happen was something that very much haunted people uh, around me, right? I can, and, and when I was a kid, I don't think I really understood this, but as an adult looking back, I can, I can see what was going on, that there was a really strong haunting that was happening. So in giving you this description, I want to tie this to, to specifically to what we're talking about in this class, to community work. When you go into a community, one of the things that you can do, you don't have to do this, but you can do this to try to figure out if like you understand the community or don't, is to try to articulate what the ghosts and specters of that community are. And you could do this a lot of different ways. You could just talk to people. You know, you could write it down. I find that writing is actually the best way for me to do this. But um, when I come in to a community that isn't my community, I usually try to do this. I try to figure out what are the ghosts and what are the specters that are haunting this community. Uh, for whatever it's worth, I also do this with individual patients. Like when I'm sitting in a room doing psychotherapy one-on-one style, same thing applies here. People tell me about their lives and I try to figure out what are the ghosts and what are the specters in their lives. And uh, again, this isn't a crazy, complicated idea. It's a lot like the communities have immune systems sort of idea. I, I think it's interesting. It's a different way of thinking, and I find it to be helpful. So I'm sharing it with you. Your low-grade depression is because you care about things and you don't want to do your work. Your low-grade depression is because you get hurt. Because you have a human heart and you don't want to do your work. Don't want to do your work. Your low-grade depression is your need for meditation, is your need for boundaries. And this brings me to my last idea for today. My last idea is a, the work of, a, of these two French theorists, Deleuze and Guattari, or Deleuze and Guattari, if you want to say it French style. Um, these were guys who were, they wrote the book Anti-Oedipus, and I think it came out sometime around like 1970. And the book kind of tried to take psychoanalytic ideas and say that um, these ideas probably made sense at one point, but that society had shifted a lot. And due to the nature of the shifts that society had gone through, those ideas no longer applied in the way that they did. And in many of them were no longer useful. It's kind of the extent of their critique here. And like I said, I think it's a really good critique. Um, but here's one of the, the things that they, they say that I found really, really interesting. Psychoanalysis was really interested in this phenomenon called repression. You know, and repression is this thing that happens when a person has a desire, has a wish, something that they want, but they can't admit that they want it. And those desires, those wishes get repressed into this thing called the unconscious. And if you'll remember, you know, back in our very early classes, I talked about how communities have an unconscious. Communities have things that they have repressed too. Those things are actually, uh, could be seen as ghosts or specters, to tell you the truth, to kind of harken back to the thing I just talked about. But anyways, um, uh, the idea here was that 
you know, people engage in this repression thing, the communities engage in this repression thing. Psychoanalysis set out to do a number of things, but one of the primary projects of psychoanalysis was to liberate people from their own propensity to repress things that they wanted. You know, uh, you might not know this about Freud, but 1935, a woman wrote Freud a letter and she was concerned about her son. She said that her son was gay and that she wanted to send her son to somebody like Freud to cure him of his gayness. And Freud responded in 1935 by saying like, hey, there's nothing wrong with your kid. You know, now being gay probably won't make his life easy, but that doesn't mean that he's sick. It doesn't mean that he's mentally ill. It doesn't mean that he's damaged. This is, there, there's been a lot of really important, very successful, influential people who've been gay throughout human history, and he names a bunch of them. Uh, so he's like, there's nothing wrong with your kid. That's indicative of how Freud thought about things. He saw that people had all sorts of different desires, oftentimes sexual desires, and that they were repressing those desires. And he believed that if people could overcome their repression, then they might be able to free up the energy that was going into repressing what they wanted and invest that energy into all sorts of other different things. So that was his idea. Now, Deleuze and Guattari come along and they say, here's the interesting thing. In the year 1970-ish, when they're writing this book or publishing this book, uh, people are a lot more liberated than they were in Freud's day and age. And they were saying that nowadays, people are starting to work and communities and groups are working harder to in, in the service of repression, in the service of keeping their desires under wraps, than they are at freeing themselves, freeing their desires. Uh, to say this in a different, possibly more succinct way, Deleuze and Guattari say that people oftentimes in communities oftentimes work harder to keep themselves enslaved than they do to liberate themselves. And they had a whole bunch, so that was the, the thing here, that like psychoanalysis wants to liberate. What they're saying is today, what psychoanalysis isn't considering is the fact that a lot of people don't want liberation. They don't want it. They'd rather be slaves. Now, this was like a really incendiary idea when they published this. This was like people were started stopped what they were doing and started paying attention to what these two dudes were saying, sometimes because they were irritated by it, sometimes because they were interested in it, sometimes because they were completely just like irate and furious about it. But People stopped and paid attention. And that was their idea, that nowadays people work harder to keep themselves enslaved, to keep their desires repressed. And they don't necessarily want liberation. And, and this is a really interesting idea. I think it's really important to bear that in mind. Let's go full circle here to when we talk about entering communities with a desire to help them overcome what they have repressed with a desire to liberate them in whatever way. A lot of times social workers are baffled about the immune system response that these communities have. Why are they not accepting the liberation that I bring is what they might think. Well, part of the reason is they have an immune system and that immune system in this instance is actually potentially maybe working to keep the community and the people in it in a position that is not a liberated position. Eh? I mean, is this blowing your mind as I'm saying this? I, it might not be. I, you might be totally bored. But when I read this stuff and when I think about this stuff, I get excited. My mind is blown. I think it's very cool. So uh, yeah, 
I threw a lot of stuff at you. That's extra stuff to go along with the stuff that's in chapter four, the not too bad chapter in your textbook. And uh, I'll stop talking now, let you get back to whatever it is that you were doing. Uh, You'll notice that I didn't talk about the Turin theory of the subject of the school in this podcast lecture. I'm going to save that for a different podcast lecture. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to get it recorded this week or get it recorded next week. Watch Moodle. It may may go up this week and it may go up next week. Just kind of pay attention and watch for it. Uh, And uh, yeah, that's it. I I hope you enjoyed listening to this. I will see you all in class. Um, Damn the man, save the empire, fight the power, uh, make glorious mistakes, all that kind of stuff. Talk to you soon.